Well, if you've been with us this year, you've been on quite a journey through this book of, well, really the whole of the Samuel narrative. And it's been a narrative in which we watch this guy, David, from a boy, rise and rise and rise and rise and marveled week after week, month after month, really, over this man's faith, over this man's courage, over this man's selflessness, over this man's sacrifice, over this man's humility. And again, as I said last week, it's like every week we've been coming to see his life. It's like, man, I need to be more like David. I need to be more like David. I need to be more like David. And then we got to last week and said, I think I can identify with David because it all changed. Easier to identify with the David of last week, because last week we came to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and what did we see? We watched even David fall hard, really hard. We saw the story of the fall of David, but as we talked about and developed, okay, it's not just the story of the fall of David. It's the story of the fall of David and everyone connected with David. It's the story of the fall of David and his family. It's the story of the fall of David in his nation. And one of the big ideas that we rolled out last week and talked about is this idea that when we fall, David, me, you, we don't fall in isolation. We always fall within the context of community. And here's what that means, practically speaking, that I'm not the only one to suffer the consequences of my falls. And neither are you. And then we added an additional big idea, the first part of which was this. It is that everyone falls. So now just play that out. You know, like take those two ideas, marry them together, bring them into your heart and ask yourself, how does that make me feel? Probably not very good because everyone falls. So that includes me. And when I fall, oh, delight of all delights, I don't just get to take myself down. I get to take others with me. Well, that's wonderful. There's no hope in that. Okay. That's not where we ended. We said everyone falls except for Jesus. There is an unfallen one. There is one and only one innocent one. And in that one alone, there's hope for all of the rest of us. And it's that hope that I want to focus on this morning. It's sort of like, you know, as we come now to 2 Samuel chapter 12, the author of 2 Samuel comes rushing to us in our despair, and not just the author of 2 Samuel, but David himself, who so terribly fell last week. And here's what they bring us. The big idea for today is simply that in Jesus, there is hope for fallen and sinful people who, in humility and in repentance, and David will show us how to do this who in humility and repentance bring their fallenness and their sin to him. So last week we got to chapter 11 and we watched David and it was startling, it was stunning, it was incredibly surprising unless you compared it to your own life, the lives of everyone else you know, or the lives of every other character in the Bible except for Christ. We watched David take, and it's a forcible term, He took the wife of another man. So he took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and he committed adultery with her, and then he sent her home. He was done. That was it until he got the note that she was pregnant, and then everything turned upside down, right? Then what did David do? He immediately murdered her husband, and then he took her into his harem full of women, and then he tried to pretend like nothing happened. But something did happen, and the writer of the story tells us what it is. This is where we left off last week, 2 Samuel 11, last part of verse 27. It simply reads, but the thing that David had done displeased 
the Lord, who now, as we pick up the story in chapter 12, takes immediate action. And I love the action that he takes because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't bring David what he deserves. He doesn't come bringing judgment. He doesn't come bringing, you know, vengeance. He doesn't come bringing wrath. He comes to him even as he came to Adam when he fell, calling him to repentance. He comes offering mercy. He comes bringing grace. And, you know, if you've got any sense of justice at all, you kind of want to go, and how exactly does he do that? Because you just told me that David committed adultery and then covered it over with murder, right? So how does he do that and remain just? For David or for me or for you? And the answer is the unfallen one. The answer is the only truly innocent one who in love took our sin and shame, substituting his truly innocent life for guilty people like David and like me and like you, and who hung on the cross suffering and dying naked. Naked. So we pick up our study this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 where we read this. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan, this prophet of God, this spokesperson for the Lord, to David. And Nathan came to David, and he said this to him, and I want you to follow this very carefully. Because what he does is he brings him a story. He takes him a parable, and it's a parable designed to draw David into the story. And not just to draw him into the story, but to awaken something that clearly, as a result of what happened last week, had previously died. And that is his sense of right and wrong, his sense of justice, his sense of righteousness. Something went amiss, and the parable is designed to fix that. So the Lord sends Nathan to David, and Nathan comes, and he says this. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, and by the way, that's David, and the other was poor, and that's Uriah. He goes on and says, the rich man had many flocks and herds. Now, what is that a reference to? To David's harem. David had many wives. David had many concubines. That's a whole entirely different conversation for an entirely different day. But the point is, David had a lot of options. He didn't have to take somebody else's wife. The rich man, Nathan continues, says, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, Uriah, had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought with his limited funds, at least in comparison with the king, when he went down to the household of of Bathsheba and paid the dowry price for her, and she was precious to him. For we read, and he, this poor man, then brought up this little ewe lamb, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. She was precious to him. David, on the other hand, treated her as nothing but a meal to be devoured. For we now read that there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man, though he had very many flocks and herds of his own, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare a meal is the idea for this guest who had come to him. But instead, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it as a meal for the man who had come to him. End of story. Now imagine David's courtroom for a minute. Because I'm thinking that it's not just David and Nathan. I'm thinking it's David and Nathan and 
court attendants, servants, people who also have been drawn into this story and who also have had their sense of justice awakened, don't you think? And all eyes are on the king at this point. What is the king going to do? Will he do what is right and just? Will he see that this rich man stands under condemnation? And it's exactly what happens. David, whose heart has been awakened again to that which is right and wrong, it says that his anger was greatly kindled against the rich man in the story. And so then he, as the king of Israel, passed judgment on the rich man, not knowing that at the same time he was actually passing judgment on himself. And he said to Nathan, and it's a vow, he says, as the Lord lives, he's swearing a vow, the man who has done this deserves to die. And incidentally, adultery in Israel was a capital offense, as was, of course, premeditated murder. And he had done both. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb that he not only stole, but then killed and ate fourfold, which was also the law in Israel. So let's say you had a lamb, and, you know, we all lived back then, and you entrusted your lamb to me, and I lost your lamb. I would have to restore one lamb to you. Now let's say you had a lamb, I stole your lamb, you found out I stole your lamb, and you came, you know, like with the sheriff, hey, Tom has my lamb, there's my lamb, that's the one, here's the special sign, or, you know, whatever, I can prove that, in fact, that is my lamb, here's justice, I would have to return your lamb to you, and now I would have to give you one of my own. I dispossessed you, I will now suffer the consequence of being dispossessed myself, but now let's say I took your lamb, I killed your lamb, I ate your lamb, then there's no possibility for me now to return your lamb. I now have to give you four lambs. How many sons, incidentally, will David lose? Four. Before the story's over. We'll see that in the coming weeks. So then David, whose sense of justice and right and wrong that was asleep, obviously, last week... Okay, well, now it's awake, and he rightly proclaims that this man is deserving of death and should make fourfold restitution. And why? He now identifies why. Because the rich man did this awful and evil thing, and because he had no pity. It's ironic, isn't it, that David can listen to this story and have pity for a poor man that he doesn't even know, and yet had no pity in the previous story, for Uriah, who was one of his 37 most mighty men, whom he clearly did know. So David pronounces judgment and even gives his reasoning. And everybody is going, right on, that's exactly right. All the court attendants are high-fiving, the king is right, the king is just, the king is righteous, the king is ruled in an obviously correct fashion. And then here's the kicker. It's the punchline. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. And then all the court attendants passed out right there. That was it. Boom. Can you imagine the courage that it took to do that? What had David done already to cover over his sin so that nobody would know that he was actually the man? He killed a man. But his heart is now awake. The story has done its job. 
The Spirit has come alongside the Word of God and awakened this man who had fallen asleep. And so then Nathan says to him, you are the rich man in that story that you just rightly proclaimed judgment upon. And so then, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wife. So David, not only did I give you your own harem in some sense, I gave you Saul's harem as well, good grief. And I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And David, if this were too little for you, I I would add to you as much more. He's saying, listen, I clearly, gladly would have doubled it if only you had asked. And so then why have you, and here's David's sin, despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. That's what it is to transgress his word, incidentally. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, focus on that, and have taken his wife to become your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, and so then here's justice. Now therefore the sword, there it is, shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor." And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, in broad daylight, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son in broad daylight that all Israel might learn from their king that no one is exempt from the law of God and that there are very real consequences as our falls, as our sins play their way out in every one of our lives. And don't we all know it a little too well? Now watch David's response. It says here that David, in humility and repentance, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You're right. I'm that guy. And I deserve to die and to make fourfold restitution. The Lord is just in his words. And then Nathan said to David, what I think that every guilty sinner not only wants to hear, but needs to hear. He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. And you want to say, well... (laughs) How did he do that exactly? I mean, how does God do that and still be just? Jesus. It's the unfallen one, the innocent one who substitutes himself in love for the guilty that we might be made clean. You see, in Jesus, there is hope for fallen and sinful people who in humility and repentance bring their fallenness and sin to him. And so then Nathan can say, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. And if you want to know what it's like or what it looks like to bring your fallenness and sin to him, I think, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a better example of that than David himself. And not just in this story, 
but even more so in Psalm 51, because here's what happens. David meets with Nathan. He makes that statement. Nathan makes that statement. Nathan leaves the room, and David whips out his pen, if you will, and he writes out his confession. And it's absolutely magnificent. And while I guess, I think, the ink is still wet, he walks it down to the choir master of Israel and he says, here's the thing, the Lord is going to publish my sin to every generation of believer and I want you to publish my repentance. I don't just want to be the king who led his people into sin, I want to be the king who showed his people the way out through the example that's found in this psalm. And so I want to look at this psalm together with you as the example of how to come to Christ in humility and repentance. And I want to begin with the superscription. The superscription is that little introductory language just before verse 1. You've got to realize all the, the numbers and all that stuff, that's, that's all relatively new, if you will. That didn't exist when it was originally written. And the superscriptions of these psalms are actually part of the psalms themselves. So there's as much scripture as anything that has a verse 1, 2, 3, or whatever in front of it. And in this case, it's incredibly telling David writes and he says to the choir master, so there it is, he's brought it to him, he's given it to him, and he's saying, put this in the hymnal of Israel, publish it as one of the Psalms, ensure that it will always be before God's people, even as this story of my sin will. To the choir master, he says, a Psalm of David, so he expressly attaches his name to it, and then he gives to us the occasion that gives rise to it, and I'm going to read it to you as it says it literally in the Hebrew text, because it's very graphic and honest. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went in to him. He penetrated his heart, his soul, with his parable. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went in to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. David is not beating around the bush with the Lord about his sin. He's very direct and honest, and he's desperate because he realizes that he cannot fix it on his own. He cannot earn his way out of this. He cannot deserve his way out of this. He can't cleanse himself from what it is that he's done. He can't buy, even with his great wealth, his way out of it. He realizes that there's one way out of this, and God is alone that one way. And so he comes with like this passionate cry and desperation to God, knowing exactly what it is that he wants from the Lord and needs from him, and he starts right out with it. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And now he's going to give us the basis for that cry for mercy. And it's very instructive because here's what it isn't. David doesn't show up and go, have mercy on me, O God, because like I'm the rich man in the story and I stole the ewe lamb and I devoured her and killed her husband and the whole deal and I can't make restitution and I get all that. I have blown it hugely. I confess that, however. Lord, did you notice the kind of life I lived prior to this? I mean, seriously, like compare all that I've done, collect it all up. I mean, can you find a more exemplary life than mine? Listen, I know that I blew it big, but good grief, doesn't the life that I lived prior to this account for something? I mean, as you put it into the scales, can't you find some, you know, cause for mercy? No. 
The answer to that is no. God's standard is his own holiness, his own righteousness. If you're as holy and righteous as God, we're good. Otherwise, the scale is tipped against you. And David gets that. He realizes that. So he doesn't even go there. And here's the other thing he doesn't do. He doesn't say, look, have mercy on me, O God. Yes, again, I'm the rich man in the story. Confess it. You got it. All that's right. You're just and okay, okay, okay. But here's the deal. I'm a guy. I'm on the roof. I see her. She's beautiful. She shouldn't have had the shades of the window open or whatever the case may be. I mean, isn't there some way for me to take some of this and put that off on her or somebody else? No. Now, as you read through the story, all the guilt's on him. She's not spoken of negatively at all, but even beyond that, no. (laughs) It's interesting. Last week, as we looked at David's fall, we walked through the fall of Adam alongside of it, and I showed you all of these different parallels and how it is that David's fall was written after the pattern of the fall of Adam. But here, David does something different. You remember what Adam did? God comes looking for him in the cool of the day. (laughs) Adam, where are you? Let's talk about your sin, sort of like he sends Nathan to David. And what does Adam do? Because I think it's a pretty familiar part of the pattern, at least in my life. Maybe you'll be able to relate to this. Adam says, Lord, um, it's true that I ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you had forbidden to me, but this woman that you gave me Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure she's at fault too. So, like, it's not all about me. But, you know, I mean, if it hadn't been for her, and again, you gave her to me, hear that? Good grief. We do the same thing. Yes, Lord, I know that I'm living in this particular kind of sin, but you don't know what it's like to, you know, to be, to live with this woman. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be married to this man. Do you know what my parents are like? Do you know what they did to me? Do you know what this other person did? Blame, 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 blame. And it's not to say that we have not been affected by the falls and sins of other people. We all of us have, big time. But I think as David is walking us through repentance, as he becomes the king who leads us to mercy, he's teaching us lessons about it. And it seems to me that the first lesson is that true repentance comes without any excuses at all. It just lays down and says, you know what? I'm guilty and I can't do anything about it. I don't deserve the mercy and grace that I desperately need and without which I will eternally perish, which leads us to repentance lesson number two, which is the relief that we do so desperately need comes from God, guys, and it's found in His steadfast love and abundant mercies. And what is the single greatest emblem of God's steadfast love and abundant mercies? It is the unfallen one who falls in death that we might have life. The innocent one who suffers the punishment of the guilty that we might be made innocent. And so David says, have mercy on me, O God. And then he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, do what? 
Blot out my transgression. He's saying, erase my sins from your book. Destroy any evidence at all of my sin. Please, please. And then wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And here's why David wants to be clean, because you have to be clean and, in fact, spotlessly, perfectly clean to come into the presence of God. And for all of the things that David's sins have deprived him of, and there are many, if you just work your way through that story and imagine it, the thing that the most precious thing that he's been deprived of as he's now been awakened is the presence of God in his life he realizes that his sin has ruptured his relationship with the lord and as a result it's not the same anymore and we experience that all the time don't we i mean all of us who are married listen when it ain't right it ain't right is it Oh, yeah, sure, we're still living in the same house, and we're still sharing the same bed, and we're still working the same program, but when there's something there standing between us, it's not so sweet. Same with our kids. Same with our parents. Same with the people we work with. Same with our friends. There's a sin standing between David and the Lord that he desperately wants the Lord to remove, for only the Lord can do that that things might be right with him again. And so then he continues in verse 3, where he says, for I know my transgressions. And here again, he's being completely honest because the word know is an experiential word. David knew Bathsheba. It's that word. And then she conceived and bore a child. He's being very direct, very honest, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says, against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, what if you were in the family of Uriah? How would you feel about that part of the deal? I don't think I'd be too jazzed about that. Like, does, is David denying that he's also sinned against Uriah's family and, and Uriah? And what about Bathsheba? And what about her family? He's not denying any of those things. He's not saying that he doesn't have an affirmative duty per Scripture to go and to ask for their forgiveness and to try to make restitution as best he can, though he can't bring Uriah back to life, can he? And he can't restore purity to Bathsheba. He can't. Only the Lord can do those things. He majors in it. David needs for the Lord to do that too. But what David is dealing with is the very definition of sin. Sin, by definition, is a violation of God's law. And he recognizes that ultimately, and most importantly, the forgiveness that he needs, needs to come from God himself. And so he says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, whether you proclaim me guilty or forgiven. And in this case, both. And then he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin... Did my mother conceive me? Sounds like another excuse, or does it? I mean, David is not saying, guys, you know, if it wasn't for that mother of mine, I... What he's doing is peeling back the layers of himself all the way to the center of him. And he's saying, Lord, my confession thus far has been inadequate. Because not only do I need to confess to you that I've committed sinful acts, I need to confess to you that at heart, at the core of my being, I'm a sinful guy. 
Not only have I done immorality, we covered that, rich man, you lamb, got it. But here's the truth about me. In my own heart, I'm immoral. Not only have I fallen, but I am fallen. We don't need to just deal with what's out here. God, I need you to deal with what's in here and change this, which brings us to repentance lesson number three, which is that it goes way beyond our actions to the very core of who we are. In other words, we need for God not only to come and to forgive us of our sins, okay, and to restore us to a right relationship with Him, but we need Him as well to fill us with His Spirit, to grant to us the transforming wisdom of His Word, to surround us with good and godly people that we can do life to, Nathans even, who will come to us, fearing that in fact we might chop their heads off, but loving us enough to do it anyway and telling us what we need to hear. We need for God not just to forgive our sins, but to change who we are. And that too is only something He can do. And that leads to repentance lesson number four, which is the true repentance frankly, results in a desire not to fall again. David saying, change me because I don't want to do this again. See, repentance turns from the sin. It doesn't mean you'll never fall back, but it's a fight against it. It's a turning away from it. It's not a forgive me and I've got plans to do it tomorrow. That's, that's not it. It's forgive me and I'm canceling my plans. So David says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, he says, you delight in truth in the inward being. So I'm trying to be truthful all the way to my core, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart, that is to say, in my conscience. And so I'm confessing everything that my conscience, by your Spirit, is sharing with me. And then he says, God, and I love this, purge me with hyssop. Now, what's the big deal with that? It's a plant that would have been dipped in blood and in water and used in rituals to ceremonially cleanse God's people of sin, you see? Symbolic. What does it point to? To the blood and water of Christ who hung and who died and whose death is proven by the point of a spear pierces his side from which pours blood and water. We come to this knowing Jesus and knowing far more than David did because, well, we've got the New Testament. But we share the same Savior. And he's saying, purge me with blood and water, if you will, and what? And I shall be clean, not I hopefully will be, and I think I probably know. I shall be clean. He says, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he says something that really doesn't make any sense. Let me hear joy and gladness. And I say that it doesn't make sense because joy and gladness are emotional states. You can't hear an emotional state. You might hear the fruit of it, like if I'm joyful and glad, I might laugh, I might sing, I might, you know, whatever. But You can't hear the state. However, here's what you can hear, and I think this is what he's saying. You can hear a word of pardon that produces an emotional state. Let me hear your word of pardon. And that, to me, is a word of joy and of gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness, he says, and let the bones, which is a reference to his psyche, he is psychologically fractured broken by his sin. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice 
for the healing that you bring and hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, he says again. And then he uses the word create. And he pulls it right out of the creation story where God at the very beginning of everything creates everything out of what? Nothing. That's significant. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And what he's saying is, and you're going to have to do it out of nothing because I have nothing clean to give to you to work with. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me the way that you did with King Saul, my predecessor. And after that, Saul was completely useless to the Lord. What is David longing, because it's another one of these repentance lessons, to do? He wants to be useful to God. He's saying, listen, I know I've crashed and burned. I recognize that the whole nation and everybody for all eternity, it seems, is now going to know about this. My goodness, this is the most public of sins. But Lord, I still want to be used by you. I was serving myself in chapter 11, but my heart has been awakened. And in your pardon, I want to be found useful nonetheless. True repentance leads to usefulness. And then David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you, for they will learn through me. Here's how you can make me useful. That you can crash and burn hard. And nevertheless be washed and forgiven, and brought back into right relationship, and even made useful. It's amazing. And so he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. It's a reference, clearly, I think, to Uriah's murder. Real honest. Deliver me from that, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud with your righteousness as my heart experiences your word of pardon. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would gladly give it to you. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, or surely I would make one. The sacrifices, he says, of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite, a humble heart. O God, you will not despise. You will not turn away, even though it deserves to be turned away. Why? Because of the unfallen one. And so then David's thoughts move to the future because there's a future even for the most scandalous of sinners. And he says, do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. All of which prefigure who? Christ, the Lamb of God, who by His sacrifice takes away the sin of the world, and who, as I said earlier, hung there naked to take away the shame of our nakedness. And so then David, who, you know, meets with Nathan, whose heart is awakened, pens this psalm. He walks it down to the choir master. Imagine the humility in that. And he says, you know, my sin is going public. 
And I'm going public with my repentance too. To the glory of God, I want you to put this in the hymnal of Israel that all of God's people, until Christ comes again, will read and be instructed by this. Let them know through me that in Jesus there is hope for fallen and sinful people who, well, in accordance with this psalm, in humility and repentance bring their fallenness and their sin to him. And in doing that, I think he taught us all these different lessons, so in case you missed it, true repentance comes without excuses. So deal with that. What are your excuses? Like, what are you into? And you're going, well, you know, but I'm so good in every other area. Like, that's not standing between you and the Lord, and it's not destroying your soul. <laughs> it comes without any excuses. Hey, you know what? This, this woman, this man, this... You know what? You and the Lord, no excuses. Secondly, the relief that we desperately need comes from Him. And it's found in His steadfast love and abundant mercies, which is another way of saying, in His cross. And the cross of the unfallen one. Thirdly, that repentance goes way beyond our actions to the very core, very core of who we are. It's not just, hey, God, here's what I've done. It's, hey, God, here's who I am, and I need help with both because I don't want to do this again. And true repentance results in a desire not to fall again. The heart of the one who is truly seeking to be forgiven is also truly seeking to be different. To change, lastly, it leads to usefulness. To this joyful desire to want to do something, anything, whatever, for the Lord your God, who speaks His word of pardon into your heart, and in doing so, allows you to hear, in some sense, joy and gladness. So take that into your heart and work that around this afternoon. I want to challenge you this afternoon to pull out Psalm 51. Even as we sent it to you last night, hoping that you would use it to prepare for today, sometime today, sit down just by yourself and work it through. And know the, the joy and the gladness of the Lord that comes alone through faith in the unfallen one, the only innocent one who gives his life for the guilty. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the unfallen one who is Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the perfect life and for the great love God, that He would offer that life in behalf of our own. Father, I pray that You would work a true work of repentance in our hearts. Lord, that we would, that we might experience Your freedom, Your words of pardon, the joy and the gladness that are ours alone in this world and alone in Christ. Bring our fallenness and sinfulness to You. Lord, wash us clean that we might be whiter than snow. And create in us a clean heart, O oh God. Lord, let us know the joy of our salvation and make us useful. For you we pray in Christ's name. Amen.